Now, last time, uh, we took pains to set out the patterned structure of the beginning of the body of Paul's letter to the Colossians. The body of the epistle begins in verse 13, and we looked at the pattern structure through verse 29. So we're into the heart of the argument of the letter. We noted that the transition from the thanksgiving section in verses 3 to 12 to the body proper in verses 13 to 29 is signaled by duplicate words of inception, duplicate words of the beginning words of verses in verse 13 and verse 15. So, as we go forward, let's briefly review that discussion, which is condensed at the top of handout number six. All right, now we talked a little bit about the proper translation of the first word of verse 13. And do you remember what the proper translation should be? Anyone? Very good. Thanks, Bob. Who was the proper translation of the first Greek word in verse 13? And just skipping down to the second question there, the proper translation of the first word in verse 15. Who once again? Thank you, Arch. All right. So we have the proper words of translation instead of the he or and he which are in the uh, normal or usual English versions. So let's, once again, review what kind of pronoun who is. It's a type of pronoun called a what pronoun? Art? It is a relative pronoun. And that would be true in verse 13 as well as in verse 15. The relative pronouns which deal with your relatives who, which, <clears throat> whom, etc. All right, now we did not talk last time about the antecedent of the relative pronoun. So let's think about what that means. What's the antecedent of a pronoun? What it refers to. The noun that it refers to. All right, so... The antecedent of a pronoun is the noun. So as we look at verse 13, what is the antecedent or who is the antecedent of the relative pronoun there in that verse? It is the father. There's the noun, which is the antecedent. And you'll notice that we find that word in the verse which precedes. So in verse 12... The antecedent of the pronoun, the relative pronoun in verse 13, is found. And we want to talk a little bit later about what's going on here grammatically, because there is some meaning here. There's a purpose in why the apostle uses the the relative pronoun. All right, now let's look at verse 15. Once again, we know that the proper translation is who? It is a relative pronoun. And we're going to ask the same question. What is the antecedent of the pronoun who in verse 15? It is the son. In which verse? 
in verse 13. All right, so we have the antecedent of who in 15 being the son in verse 13. And you'll notice also the other relative pronoun in this section. Now, I'm calling this section the first unit. We pointed it out last week, verses 13 and 14. We have another relative pronoun in verse 14. What is it? Do you see it? Whom and what is the antecedent of whom in verse 14? It is the son again. All right, very good. All right, so now we've solved our little grammatical lesson, but we note the symmetry and regularity of it. That's important. The apostle is doing something in terms of equalities here. All right, so let's think about that for a moment. Note the feature of Paul's rhetorical or literary genius here. The relative pronouns tie together or weave together like a seamless garment the unfolding or successive units of his epistle. Now, you see what he's done in verse 13 by using the relative pronoun who. He's tying or he's weaving together, he's crocheting together the thanksgiving section with this section which is Christological. We're going to be looking at Christology or the person of Christ from verses 13 through at least verse 20 and on into the end of the chapter. So the body of this letter is going to be knit or tied in to the thanksgiving section of this letter by the relative pronoun. The relative pronoun who in 13 links unit 13 and 14 to God the Father, antecedent of the pronoun in verse 12, as we've noted. It unfolds, then, our Heavenly Father's role in the drama of redemption. Because we've noted last week that there's a motif or a theme for each of the units in this section 13 to 29, it is the motif or theme of salvation or redemption. The word explicitly occurs in verse 14. All right, so the father, as the antecedent of the who in 13, is drawn into, he's tied into, he's woven into, he's knit into the narrative of the drama of redemption which we're beginning to unpack in verses 13 and 14. And, and, in symmetrical or parallel fashion, the relative pronoun who in verse 15 links the unit 15 to 20 to God the Son, the antecedent of the relative pronoun in verse 15, so as to unfold the role of the redeeming pattern of the Son in the drama of the kingdom of heaven. Who, referring to the Father, drawing him into the plan of redemption. Who, referring to the Son, drawing him into the plan of redemption. You see what he's done. He's placed the Father and the Son on equal footing. He's put the Father and the Son respectively and grammatically in equal categories. He's made them relative pronouns so that he can put them together in this redemptive drama. The relative pronouns are intentional references 
to two of the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Son. And they are intentional links, joining them together symmetrically, equally, co-equally in the plan of redemption for the Colossian Christians, we Christians, all Christians reading this letter should pick up the clue that the apostle gives you here. Salvation or redemption is the work of co-equal persons of the Godhead. The signal is, in my opinion, emphatic. All right, so this is not just an exercise in relative pronoun grammar. This is a theological exercise which is extremely penetrating and profound. I warned you that there is profundity behind these units at the body of this letter at the, in, in, the, in the balance of the first chapter. Now you're beginning to see it. You're seeing it here with an equal reference to father and to son with respect to the work of redemption, which suggests strong equality of being. All right, any questions? All right, now let us reflect on the image of darkness. That image in verse 13. First, as your handout asks, is darkness, is the image antithetical? What do I mean by antithetical? Give me a synonym for antithetical. Art? Opposite. Opposite. Very good. Is the image, is the word darkness antithetical? Contrasted to light. Did you see that anywhere else? As you're looking at the passage, do you see that anywhere else? God is light. doesn't say that. Is it in the text? Is it before the text? Yes, the saints in light. So there's the antithesis, correct? So the darkness picks up on the light in the previous verse, the light which shines in the darkness. Now, light, dark. Why does Paul do this? Why do you think he's using this antithetical imagery here? He just likes to think in terms of contrasts. So if he said darkness is the domain of that, uh, there's a darkness domain, then the opposite is a light domain. So that, he just thinks in those categories? Or if he thinks in those categories, why does he think in those categories? Art? <coughs> Verse 12, that the Father has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's talking about the present. In the next verse, he goes back to the past, the previous. So he's All right. Does that, give, does that give you a clue as to why he's thinking in these categories? We're asking the question, why is he thinking in terms of light and darkness? Christina, what do you think? He's thinking in terms of light and darkness. Now, I put you on the spot. I like that. Uh, well, yeah, what well, we talked about before in the previous verses with the hub and 
Christ in the Spirit. So was he reminding them what they have? And so then he's So why did he use that image of what they have? Oh, because what they're what? perhaps the danger. Is it what? Perhaps what they're losing the danger because aren't we basically about to warn them? Like, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I couldn't hear what she said, but it's just such a complete opposite. Before we're saved, why would he think about it that way, though? Why would he say, well, once upon a time uh, you were saved and you weren't saved, but now you are saved? Christine, you had your hand up. You were wa waving back there. Well, the previous said, well, I'm going to say giving thanks. So he's talking about giving thanks for what they had, that they were rescued. So is he looking in that direction? Why? Art? Right. You reminded us in the previous lecture that... Uh, Paul himself had experience. Ah, you remembered something I said. <laughs> I'm proud of you. That's the only thing. <laughs> so, here's light and darkness, which comes out of Paul's own biography, correct? Paul's own experience of light and darkness. Where? Joy, where was that? Where did that happen to Paul? Wrote to Damascus. Ah, 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 your name's not Joy. I'm yeah. joyful you're here, but <laughs> but I, I'm giving her a chance. Yes, where? Before he was converted. Well, not before, but when he was converted. Where was he converted? What location? Damascus. Damascus. Yes, he was close to Damascus, but he wasn't there yet. So he was on the flight to Damascus. He was on the road to Damascus. Okay. All right. So I'm suggesting that the use of this antithetical language here, the contrastive state of light and darkness, is derivative from Paul's own biographical experience, from his experience on the Damascus road. Now, let me unfold that. The light which shined upon Paul on the Damascus road was not the light of the sun, nor was it cosmic or nebular light, so called. The light which shined on Paul on the Damascus road was the light of God's glory, the eschatological light of God's heaven shone upon him. God's heavenly dwelling place cast its shining light upon Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. That light which enveloped him was the light of the eschaton. That light which fell upon him was the ineffable life of the eschaton. Indescribable is what ineffable means. Beyond description. That light blinds Saul. That light thrusts him into darkness. Blinds him by its brilliance and sends him to inky blackness. A brilliance which surpasses the light of the sun, casts 
Saul of Tarsus into the domain of darkness. Verse 13, the domain of darkness for three days and three nights. Three days and three nights, no less. Acts 9.9. Isn't that interesting? Saul of Gamaliel placed in the position of the Gentiles. Those described by John the Baptist in Matthew 4.16, quoting Isaiah 9.2, as the people dwelling in deep darkness. On them, those Gentiles, on them has the light shined. Paul, on the Damascus Road, must experience reversal. He must experience reversal. Saul of Tarsus must be reversed. Blinding light thrusts him back into darkness. Darkness like that at the first creation. Darkness like pagan blindness to light. Paul becomes, as it were, a pagan darkness dweller, like the Colossians. Like the Colossians, Paul and the Colossian pagans are in the domain of darkness, the darkness domain. Notice verse 13 in the language. His story on the Damascus Road mirrors their story in Colossae. Bound up in the darkness of unbelief, Saul of Tarsus, bound up in the Judaistic darkness of unbelief, and the Colossians bound up in the darkness of pagan unbelief. Pagan and Judaistic unbelief. Darkness. Blind darkness. Inky black darkness. But upon that darkness, God sovereignly shined the light of heaven. It is the light of glory which changes, which reverses, which converts all this. God speaks into the darkness, the void of creation, the inky void of paganism. God speaks, let light shine in the darkness, and behold, there is light. Heaven's light. Heaven's light giver. Heaven's light producer. Heaven's ineffable light dweller. I am the light of the world, he says. Jesus Christ says he is the light as he says, I am that I am. Christ Jesus, the I am light, flashes that eschatological glory and radiance upon Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. It is heaven's glory light it is the Shekinah glory light which shines, surrounds, 
envelops Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. Shekinah glory light. Now that word is spelled out on your handout. Shekinah is a Hebrew word. It is a word for God's glory presence in the Old Testament, though the Hebrew word is not found in the Old Testament. So the Hebrew word Shekinah is a rabbinical term. It comes from rabbinical Hebrew, but it refers to God's glory appearance over the tabernacle, for instance, in the days of Moses, his glory descending upon Solomon's temple in the time of the United Monarchy, his glory revealed in Ezekiel's vision. The first chapter of the book of Ezekiel and the vision of God's heavenly throne atop the crystal sea. A lapis lazuli throne mounted on a sea of crystal from which radiated the Shekinah glory of the Lord, the glory of heaven's Lord and his radiance. The light of heaven's glory, the Shekinah glory arrests Saul of Tarsus. The Shekinah glory of God stops Saul of Tarsus. The eschatological glory of God envelops Saul of Tarsus, possesses Saul of Tarsus, translates Saul of Tarsus, transfers Saul of Tarsus into Paul and Christo, Paul in Christ. Paul and Christo, light seer, light possessor, light dweller. Paul in Christ, no longer blind to the light of the world, Jewish world, Gentile world, now enlightened in Christ. Paul in Christ, no longer blind to the light of glory, the light of the eschatological glory world. Paul no longer blind to the light of heaven. Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus has been transformed by the light, the light of the age to come. The glory of the light which makes all things new. The new creation light of the saints in light has transferred Saul of Tarsus out of his darkness out of his blindness, out of his pagan-like blindness, has transferred him into the kingdom of light and life and immortality. The new creation has shined upon him heaven's wondrous light and made him a new creature, created him anew, Recreated him from above, new created him from darkness into light. He has experienced this. What he's writing to them is what he has experienced. It is his story. And that's the reason he's affirming it for them. 
The drama of my life story is the drama of your story. It is a story of you coming out of blindness and darkness into the light of Jesus Christ, the risen, glorious Savior. This is not incidental vocabulary, mere antithetical images. This is the warp and woof of the life experience of the apostle himself. I want you to know that what you have experienced in Christ, I experienced in Christ before you. And because I experienced it in Christ before you, I unfold it before you once again so that you may treasure it, you may ponder it, you may understand its depths, you may perceive its profundity in your own religious experience. The depth of the riches of Christ Jesus who dwells in ineffable light and shined that light upon my deep darkness. Well, that story of Paul's experience now becomes the paradigm for his comments to the Colossian Christians. The autobiographical narrative undergirds Paul's text here. The biographical narrative undergirds Paul's imagery here. Surely it is clear, well, in my opinion, surely it is clear Paul's narrative experience of translation from darkness to light in the Son of the Father is also the narrative experience of the Colossian believers from darkness to light in the Son of the Father. Heaven's light. The eschatological light has shined in and upon them. That light of the age to come has delivered them from the inky darkness of their pagan environment, that world of ugly, vicious, death-loving darkness. The light of the Damascus Road, yea, that very same heavenly light has shined upon the Gentiles of Colossae and they bask in that light as the man who writes this letter to them basks in that light. The apostle's story is their story. And he draws his reader into his own story, which is also Christ's story. For he is dwelling in that ineffable light. He is alive, out of darkness, into that ineffable light. And so lives and reigns in that kingdom of light forevermore. Paul Paul does this so that the Colossians may experience that eschatological light in Christ as he experienced that eschatological light in Christ. The body, therefore, of this epistle begins with verses 13 and 14. 
begins with the salvific and redemptive reality of the new creation from darkness to light. A reality which has drawn the Colossians into the eschatological story, the story of Jesus the Christ, who is the light of light, as he is very God of very God. I trust that you perceive, at least to a small degree, the embarrassment of riches which are here in front of us. The unsearchable riches of the triune God who dwells in unapproachable light, yet who deigns to shine that heavenly light upon our dark and blind souls. Creation light as new creation light. Eschatological light as new heavens light. Light in Christ as no darkness light. No darkness ever in his light. Heaven's light. New creation light. The light of the age to come has dawned upon Saul of Tarsus and upon the believers in pagan Colossae. Upon them has the light shined. Now, the vectors. Let's examine the vectors from and to in verse 13 as we consider the worlds they indicate. We move from the world dominated by darkness both visible and invisible, we move to a world of the kingdom of the beloved Son of God, both visible and invisible. Consider first the darkness world from which we are moved. The darkness world visible. The world of darkness visible is a natural, visible, dark world. It is dark with its ugliness. It is dark with its wretchedness. It is dark with its brutality. That darkness is visible even as it is physical. So the darkness world has visible vectors. It is a naturally visible world. It is a physically visible world. It is a world which has its own deity. Its deity is visibly the tangible idolatry of power, ultimate power. Now, there may be little shrines in that visible world of darkness. There may be tangible idols in that visible world of darkness, but the reality... The visible reality is the way idolatry possesses the personality. And behind that self-position, that narcissistic possession behind it is, as Nietzsche called it, the will to power. 
Power is the idol of the visible dark world. And it manifests itself in political power, ecclesiastical power, social power, economic power. It manifests itself throughout the culture in those gods before which power brokers and power-hungry persons lust. Now, the final visible element of the darkness world is that it is a mortal world. It is a world in which death has the final word. Now, I haven't exhausted all the characteristics of the world of darkness visible. But let's contrast that, or let's complement that, would be a better way of saying that. Let's complement that with the darkness world invisible. There is a visible world of darkness. There is an invisible world of darkness. The visible is natural. The invisible is infernal. Infernal. Which you know from Dante's Inferno refers to hell. Hellish invisibility. But real visibility. It is real. Now the second element in the world, the darkness world, invisible, it contrasts or complements the physicality of the darkness world visible. And this invisible element is spiritual, spiritual darkness. Invisible, but nonetheless real, concretely real. So you'll notice we're complementing or matching up natural with infernal, spirit, physical with spiritual. And now how about this tangible power of idolatry? In the invisible darkness world, it's the intangible power of demonic forces. The powers of darkness unseen but real. Those powers that Jesus himself clashed with. Face to face. Head on. Exorcising them. Driving them out. Showing who was more powerful. But those intangible demonic forces are still abroad. They're still real. They're still alive and well in the invisible dimensions of their operation. And finally, in the darkness world visible, we noted mortality, which is a characteristic of that visible world. In the invisible darkness world, it is immortality. That is, a never-dying darkness. All right, so much for the world of darkness. What about the kingdom world of the Son of God and its visibility? This is obviously the kingdom of light. But in its visibility, we'll begin with the ecclesiastical aspect. Notice verse 18a, where the apostle here talks about 
Christ the head of the body, the church. Church visible, ecclesiastical, is part of the kingdom world visible of God the Son. Second element of the visible kingdom world is its physicality. It is a physical arena. Kingdom of kingdom of God on earth manifests itself in physical elements, in people, in godly institutions, etc. There's a physicality about it. And third, it manifests itself visibly and tangibly in rulers and authorities and powers who exercise dominion in its visible form. Well, what about the kingdom of the Son of God invisible? If in its visibility, in its visibility it is ecclesiastical, in its invisibility it is eschatological. Real, but eschatologically determined and oriented. In its visibility, the kingdom of the Son of God is physical. In its invisible aspect, it is spiritual. In its visibility, we noted that there are tangible rulers, powers, and authorities. In its invisible aspect, the kingdom of the Son of God is is dominated by intangible, angelic rulers and powers. I don't mean to dismiss the power of the triune, the trinity themselves, but nonetheless, we're looking at the instruments here. which correspond to the rulers, powers, and authorities of the visible kingdom of God. All right, so our point is, that the world of heaven and earth contains elements which are visible and invisible in each. And we've listed <coughs> complementary or contrastive features <coughs> in this little exercise. Thus, the adjectives visible and invisible are descriptive of the world of the domain of darkness and the world of the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. Now, why did I take time to do this? Because you're going to see that vocabulary when you move on through verses 15 and following. And I'm establishing a principle for understanding the meaning of that vocabulary by contrasting the kingdom of the Son of God with the domain of darkness, which is the preface or introduction to that imagery and language. Do we want to grasp the vocabulary here in 13 and 14, and then we want to understand how he's going to unfold some of the drama, meaning, characteristic, and vectors of that vocabulary in verses 15 and following. I won't let you forget it when we take a look at verse 15. I'll remind you of the dramatic significance of it and ultimately the redemptive historical significance of it. But, We've established the point as we've been thinking of the contrast of darkness with light. All right. 
Now, according to verse 13, we are transferred by the Father into the kingdom of his Son. How does he do that? How does he transfer a a Saul of Tarsus? How does he transfer a Epaphras of Colossae or Philemon of Colossae? How does he do this? How does he do this to you and to me? How does he do this to any person whom he takes out of darkness and brings them into light? How does it happen? Paul's already told us in this letter, hasn't he? He's brought them into union with Christ. And Christo, in Christ, verse 2. In Christ, verse 4. He has brought them into that transferred relationship, translated relationship. He has brought them into it by joining that person to himself, his possession in an unbreakable bond which ties that person to Christ. Christ has laid hold of that person. He's laid hold of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, and he's brought him into a sweet and permanent union with himself, a union which cannot be divorced, broken, or (coughs) assaulted. And Paul uses that vocabulary here already in his letter, to underscore what that sweet, precious, and uh, tightly bounded and secure union implies. All right, so, he uses the phrase in Christ to explain how that transfer or translation has occurred. He also uses another phrase in verse 8. In the Spirit... In the Holy Spirit. So in Christ, because we're bound to the Savior. In the Spirit, because why? What is he reflecting on when he says, in the Spirit? Meaning, in the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit take part in this translation? In this transferal paradigm? Did Jesus say anything about this matter? Regeneration? Did Jesus say anything about regeneration? You must be born again. That's right. And actually, the better translation of that, you must be born again in John 3, 7 is, you you must be born from above. Is that an eschatological dimension? Is that being born out of heaven itself? Is that being reborn from the light of heaven's glory? Yes. You see how you're snowballing these images now in terms of the Son in Christ and the Spirit in the Spirit. Because it is the work of the Spirit to actually make the transformation by regenerating, giving you a rebirth, giving you an eschatological birth.
the recreation imagery then of this epistle and even of this section of the epistle reflecting back upon the work of the Son and the Spirit, Christ and the Holy Spirit in the earlier part of this epistle already in order to unfold the kingdom of the glory of the Son himself, beloved of his Father in the bond of the Spirit. The Trinity is even involved in the plan of redemption. Well, you knew that already, but do you see how the Apostle has drafted it, has just woven it into the letter that he's drafted for these Colossian Christian brothers and sisters? All right, we'll take a break. Now, verse 14, and the word redemption, for which I've listed some resources, two of which you can find on the Internet if you're interested in searching them. The article by B.B. Warfield on New Testament terminology of redemption as I said, is on the Internet, but it published in the collected works of Warfield, the volume called The Person and Work of Christ. <clears throat> and then a short article by Gerhardus Voss on the Pauline conception of redemption, in, <clears throat> also available online. Uh, you don't need to buy a book to get it. You can print it off the Internet. <clears throat> but if you uh, <clears throat> are interested in the book, which contains a collection of Voss's essays and articles. It's in a volume called Redemptive History and Biblical Interpretation. I don't want to neglect Leon Morris, the late Leon Morris, Australian uh, Reformed scholar. Uh, Leon Morris's Apostolic Preaching of the Cross because he deals with the detailed Greek vocabulary of the New Testament with respect to the term redemption. Warfield and Voss do as well, but uh, Morris's treatment is... Very, very thorough. Uh, the, the book is a couple hundred pages long, but it is an excellent detailed treatment of the whole concept of redemption in the Old and New Testament alike, not just, not just the New Testament because he goes back into the roots of the vocabulary in the Old Testament. At any rate, if you're interested, there are some uh, written resources. Now, this word redemption means freed from the bondage of the dark Lord, the powers of darkness. We've been talking about this contrast between darkness and light. And here in the word redemption brings out once again another nuance or another shade of meaning of that term with respect to the world of darkness. This word redemption means rescue from the kingdom of Satan. It means deliverance from the infernal powers. It means being redeemed from the wrath that now is. Our Lord refers to that present wrath in John 3:36, one that does not believe on me, the wrath of God abides on him now. 
redeemed from the wrath that now is, John 3.36, and the wrath that is to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the next book beyond Colossians in which Paul makes that statement that we've been delivered from the wrath to come in Christ Jesus. Now, the relative clause, relative prepositional phrase in verse 14, in whom, as we've already indicated, refers to the Son of God, Jesus, our Redeemer. Now, we want to penetrate into the story underneath that image, the image of redemption in Christ the Redeemer. Well, as we've listed them, freedom from the bondage to the dark Lord, rescued from the kingdom of Satan, delivered from the infernal powers and redeemed from the wrath to come, he, that is the Son of God, must identify with all these elements of the curse if he is to redeem us, verse 13, from them. Which means he must submit to the bondage of the dark Lord. He must place himself voluntarily in the hour of darkness and the power thereof, as he says in Luke 22, verse 53. He must allow himself for an instant to be captured by the kingdom of Satan and permit the devil for a moment to cry out in victory, you son of God, abandoned by your father, you belong to me. Think about that. He must be willing to submit to that horrific demand. He must be seized by the infernal powers. As the Apostles' Creed declares, he descended into hell. And he must bear, enter into, be overcome by the wrath of God now and not yet. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To redeem us, Jesus, God's Son, must be redeemed. He must be redeemed. If we are to be redeemed, the Son of God must be redeemed. That is the narrative that is most necessary, most precious, most wondrous. Jesus. God's Son redeemed in our place. Was he not wondrously, omnipotently freed from the bondage, the dark death bondage of the dark Lord? Indeed, he lives. The Son of God lives alive from the dead, darkness swallowed up in his resurrection life, his resurrection light, his born again from the dead glory light. 
Jesus reborn. Was the Son of God, our Redeemer, not wondrously, omnipotently released from the captivity of the kingdom of Satan when he triumphantly led captivity captive and declared, You, Satan, belong to me. I have the keys of death and hell. Was our Redeemer, the Son of God, not wondrously, omnipotently rescued from the hellish torments of separation, even for an instant, separation from the loving face of his Father, a moment of dereliction which would have been as hell to him. Even a nanosecond of it would have been as an eternal hell to him. Why have you forsaken me? Never in all eternity. Was the Son of God, our Redeemer, not wondrously, omnipotently vindicated from the wrath of God by bearing the cost, paying the price, entering into that wrath in order to satisfy its demands for the sake of others. He, wondrous Savior, all-glorious, bears the wrath of his Father, which we deserve, but he does not bear our well, he does bear our well-deserved wrath by taking our place in the crosshairs of divine judgment and just anger against sin. He does so and emerges from that dread suffering declaring, I have paid it all. For your sake, I, the Son of God, have made your story my story. Your story of dread wrath has become my story so that my story of no wrath may become your story. The narrative drama of redemption is the story of the Son of God, our Redeemer, entering into our story, entering into the sinner's story, the Son of God becoming sin who knew no sin, our narrative drama, his narrative drama, so that we may mirror mirror his story, redeemed once and for all from sin and death and darkness as he is redeemed from the dark Lord and the powers of hell and the just and righteous wrath of God. He has gone into it in order to finish it on our behalf. Wondrous Savior, all glorious, that he would bend himself, humble himself, incarnate himself to such an end on our behalf. You can't praise him enough for this. It'll take you an eternity to finish praising him for this. Do you see the depths to which the apostle was taking you? Down into the profundity of the drama of the biography of Jesus of Nazareth, which is the biography of a sinner as well as a savior. 
Because he must become what he is not. Well, to let us become what we are not. Do you see the underlying narrative? Which the apostle himself has grasped, has been drawn into. The drama of identification with Christ, which the apostle explores, penetrates. Years in the desert of Arabia, penetrating, being drawn into what none of the other apostles have penetrated to the depth to which this great apostle has been allowed to penetrate. I will point you, my ambassador, my missionary, my voice, my life to the Gentile world. And you Gentiles, we Gentiles, we are the beneficiaries thereof. This is profound interface between the Son of God's story and the Apostle's story. Paul's story hidden with Christ in God in this story. You do see it, I trust. You do see it. For that is the never-ending story in truth. Never-ending story which he's declaring to his Colossian Christian readers. This story of the Son of God, our Redeemer, Paul is saying, is your story, Colossian brothers and sisters. The story of your redemption, the story of my redemption, the story of our redemption is united to the story of the redemption of Jesus of Nazareth, the beloved Son of God. There is no redemption for you unless he comes into history to do what your history has done to you and save you from it. This is not an abstraction. This is not a doctrinal phantasm. This is not a catechetical exercise. This is a personal identification with a person who came for your sake. It is life. I'm not minimizing the catechetical or the doctrinal. I'm simply saying there's more than that here. Or do you think you can exhaust the mind of God or penetrate to the depths of the meaning of his word? I'll repeat myself. You will have a joyous eternity to do so, and you still will not get down to the bottom. But that joyous prospect is in front of you. With the saints in light, with whom you may sit down and talk about the wondrous work of Christ in their life. Doesn't that attract you? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Paul? John? Peter? John Calvin? Well, at any rate, the forgiveness of sins phrase enriches 
the narrative of redemption. He places it beside it in verse 14 because he's expanding upon redemption in this aspect. Aha, you see, he says that redemption equals forgiveness of sin, and that's the end of the story. I don't think so. we got two other epistles from the pen of this inspired apostle who talk an awful lot about justification, and justification includes a granting of righteousness. So we're going to have to fill out the whole apostolic doctrine of redemption if we're going to put together Romans and Galatians and Colossians. This is again the facet of the embarrassment of riches. We haven't exhausted Redemption when we simply talked about forgiveness of sins. We haven't exhausted redemption when we simply talked about justification in the righteousness of Christ. We haven't exhausted it because there's more to the story. Both are necessary. Forgiveness and righteousness imputed. So don't say to me that Colossians 1.14 says, well, you see, redemption or salvation is just simply forgiveness of sins. Why is he why is he emphasizing it here? It has something to do with why the Colossians needed to read this here. And they didn't need to read what he sent to the Galatians up the road about the Judaistic doctrine of justification or righteousness by works. It has something to do with what the Colossians needed to understand here. And that's the reason he does it. He's not forgetting that he told the Galatians about justification by righteousness imputed. He's not forgetting that. But to the Colossians, he's talking about forgiveness of sins. He's talking about the breaking of the debt that sin imposes upon a pagan life. And the weight of that debt that crushes the life out of a pagan soul, crushes the life into desperation and suicide and immorality, crushes the life into hopelessness. How do I pay off my guilt? How do I escape from this world when there is no other world to escape to. This is a pagan city. This is a pagan culture. There is no eschatology. There is only a gravestone. There is only a tomb. There is only death. The forgiveness of sins lifts the weight of that justly understood debt owed for the guilt and immorality and sinfulness of the pagan heart. So this is the debt which is the wages of sin. This is the debt which every sinner owes. Jesus pays it. The account is stamped paid in full. Signed in blood attesting the divine and beloved Son of God. We may ask, why must the Son of God pay the debt of the sin we owe? Well, 
Let's ask, why must the Son of God pay the debt of sin we owe? Let's ponder that question. Why wasn't a Passover lamb good enough? Why wasn't a bull or a goat good enough? Why couldn't they pay the debt that I owe? Because they weren't good enough. Because they were only pictures or figures of something that was good enough. So I can't get rid of my sin through the lamb and the goat because they're not an end in themselves. They point beyond themselves to something which is far more exceedingly excellent. Well, what if I resolve to become a good person? Jesus of Nazareth was a good person. Many people believe he was the best person in human history. He was a great moral person. He set an example to follow, an example of goodness. And that example stimulates me to moral virtue. So perhaps being a good person will take the debt and the weight of what I owe for sin and guilt off, off of me. And yet, I'm not good enough in my heart of hearts that Shame of guilt still nags and leaves that unhealed scar in my soul. So being a good person wouldn't pay the debt any more than bringing a lamb or a bull or a goat would pay the debt. I owe to God full payment of the debt of sin. If it were to be extracted from me if I were to pay it myself. How extensive would my payment have to be? It would have to be as extensive with respect to size as the immensity of God himself. In other words, if I were to pay the debt myself, it would have to be as extensive as infinity. For it's an infinite debt. Well, how if I'm going to pay it, would I, <clears throat> would I pay it in extension through time? If I were going to pay it in my own right, how long would it take me to pay it off? It would take me an eternity. For I have an infinite debt and an eternal debt. And my good works can't match either the infinity of what is required or the eternity of what is required. And my animal sacrifices can't match the infinity that's required or the eternity that is required. I need an infinite satisfaction. I need an eternal satisfaction. Where do I find such a satisfaction? And the catechetical answer is the answer that every child should know. The answer that every octogenarian or old person coming close to death should know. The answer is I need an infinite person. I need an eternal person to pay off my infinite debt 
and my eternal death. Oh, it's not the mere peccadillos of my disobedience or sinfulness. It's the eternal and infinite dimension of even my peccadillos. You understand why the deity of Christ is absolutely essential to your salvation? It's not only essential to true Christianity, it's essential to your redemption. If he's not God, he does you no good. He can only do himself good, and that impossibly. For if he could save anybody, he could save only himself. He couldn't save anybody else because he's not an infinite person. If Jesus of Nazareth is a mere man, if he's only a man, nothing but a man, if he's a Jesus of Jesus Christ superstar, if that's the Jesus... He can't save you or me or anyone else. So when you run into people in liberal denominations who say that Jesus is not God, you immediately fall on your knees and pray that they would repent on the sight. Because you see what's at stake, don't you? Don't you? Because you realize you have an infinite penalty that could only be satisfied in an eternal dimension. It'll take you an eternal hell to pay that penalty and still in an eternal hell you'll never finish paying it. You will not come out until you have paid the last penny. But Jesus paid it all because he was able to pay it all. Because of who he is, he could pay it all. And there was no one else like him who could pay it all. I can't pay it for you. You can't pay it for anybody else. No preacher can do it. No church can do it. Only Jesus can do it because he is God as well as man. Fully God. Perfectly God as well as fully man and perfectly man. Sinless God-man. Take that away. You have got nothing left of Christianity. Paul's talking about the Father and the Son and even the Spirit in this section or in this part of his epistle is an an alert to you and to me and everybody who reads that we must have God acting in this matter or we are of almost all, all men and women most miserable and hopeless. I gave you the Athanasian Creed several weeks ago to read and reflect upon, I hope you did. If you didn't, then shame on you. Because that creed is a magisterial summary of why you need Jesus as God the Son for your redemption. So repent of not reading it and go back and do your homework. And if you lost where you put it, Simply put Athanasian Creed on the internet and you can read one online or print it off and meditate it, meditate on it that way. And next week we'll have a quiz. No, I said that before. Please understand that these things are for your edification. They help your soul understand, your mind and your soul understand. Bottom line here, at the end of this uh, two-verse unit, 
bottom line here is that underneath the apostles' language is the narrative story of Christ, the Son of God. The Christ, Son of God, who met Paul on Damascus Road and shined upon him, revealed to him the world of the new creation, showed him in showing to Paul his own ever-glorious self, showed him the environment of a heavenly and glorified world, both visible and invisible. Now caught up into that world of the beloved Son of God, who is God, Paul writes to the Colossian Christians to declare that his story, which is Christ's story, is their story too. The story of the new creation in the Son of God is the story of deliverance from the domain of darkness into the light of the kingdom of God. The story of transference to the kingdom of heaven. The story of redemption full and free through the forgiveness of sins and the semi-eschatological now and not yet. That is a wondrous message for ancient pagans, which the Colossian Christians once were, even as it is a wondrous message for modern pagans, which we who believe once were. Ancient and modern unbelief, paganism is darkness, meaninglessness, hopelessness, fearfulness. In the kingdom of the Son of God, the Father's love, all those Former things have passed away. You see, they passed away because they have passed away for Christ. So they have passed away for those who are en Christo, in Christ. He is all the story. The story is all about him, all about those in him. The story is not about you or me, per se, It is about you and me in Christ. He is all the story as he was for Paul and the Colossian Christians. That's the narrative story of the epistle to the Colossians. Do you have any questions or comments? I remind you that we will not meet on March 2nd. So, next week and then a break. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are amazed at how the Apostle draws upon his own experience in being transferred out of darkness into light and makes it the pattern of the story of the Colossian believers, inviting them into that very drama which so changed his life and made him a great servant, profound and deep of the riches of grace that are in Christ Jesus our Lord.
In our discouragements, O oh Lord, we need to be reminded of our identity with this story. In our occasional <clears throat> downcast moments, we need to be re- reminded of the drama in this story. Even in our disobedience, Lord, forgive us for it. We need to be reminded of the drama of this story. Lord, out of our union with our Savior, sweetly turn our minds and hearts and souls and lives to the wonder of this story. Story of Jesus, our Redeemer which became mirrored in the story of Paul the Apostle and is reflected in the story of brothers and sisters in Colossae. May it be our story in truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.